0: Welcome to episode 25 of the Positive Thinking and the Meaning of Life podcast. My name is Marcus Freestone. Firstly, apologies for the delay of almost two months since the last episode. My relaxing Christmas break turned into three weeks recoding my entire website, which is exhausting and i've been very busy doing loads of other stuff online and releasing loads of new music and working on a novel and blah 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 anyway apologies for the delay but we're back now or rather i'm back uh, and you're back listening although uh, your life hasn't changed except that you're now listening to this podcast and i know at least one person is uh, is waiting for this podcast so hello heidi my number one listener um okay so uh, however, apart from general busyness and the exhaustion of being a man of almost forty-six living somewhere cold and dark—that's Wales, not Iceland—um, anyway, <laughs> um, there is also a. I realised I had a kind of psychological hang-up about doing this podcast, and I'm going to explain it to you now because this is about psychology, and. Even if you're one of the three people on the planet who don't have your own podcast, (laughs) you weirdos, um, I think this may be relevant because uh, it's about childhood. So I realized something recently that although I've been immensely busy, I have been kind of putting off doing this podcast. And I thought, why? And then I realized that of all the things I do, This is the only thing that I see as work. And I thought, why is that? Because this is just talking into a microphone with a bit of sort of thinking and preparing and writing beforehand. And I love writing. So I thought, what's the problem? And then I realized when I was seven, my number one ambition in the world was to write novels. That's all I wanted to do. And it took me till I was 39 to properly finish one. But I've now. Um, I'm now working on my eighth or ninth novel, and also I've been making music i was playing I was playing music when I was three or four um, and so I grew up thinking that writing novels, writing books, and making music was fun. It was something I played at. It wasn't something I was forced to do in school. It was something that I did because I wanted to, and so now psychologically I see making music and writing novels as a hobby, but obviously podcasting wasn't around when I was a child because, as I've just mentioned, I'm nearly forty-six, so there was no such thing as the interwebs back then. So I have never had the experience of recording something like this or indeed recording anything as a child and so it's not something that I learned that has gone into my subconscious as something that's fun so I see it as work and also the way I've been approaching it thus far which I'm now going to change because it's not working for me is I've basically been writing a half hour essay and then reading it out and of course essays much as I love writing non-fiction and writing about psychology, philosophy, mental health, all the things we talk about on this podcast and in the books, essays are something you write in school because you have to. You're forced to do it. So I realised there was a sort of double... There were two reasons there, hence the use of the word double, and then I was going to say double bind, but that doesn't work. Anyway, is that a kind of yoghurt? No, anyway... um. <laughs> get to the point marcus so i've been kind of reluctant to do this podcast because i've seen it as work because i've been writing it like an essay and it's to be honest it's felt like doing homework and also i have a hang-up about having a routine and a deadline and so doing something every week is is different to just writing novels and making albums at my own pace anyway as i keep saying on this show the show podcast sod it, I'm old, I'm going to call it a show, on this show that I'm now taping, oh, yeah, I'm taping this show now, and, uh, oh, I completely lost my track now with that old man reference. Um, No, it's gone. Anyway, the point is that, oh, yes, as I keep saying on the podcast, that podcast stroke show, I keep saying that, when my whole kind of philosophy of all this is once you recognize the pattern, the negative pattern, that's often enough by itself to break it. So now I've realized I've got these hangups about doing the podcast, hopefully I'll be able to overcome them. And already five minutes in, I am actually enjoying this more than I normally do. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling relaxed about it and it's not feeling like work. So fingers crossed, um, podcast every week from now on. Yay! And I release one person will be happy about that. Okay, so fortunately, in terms of this podcast, my uh, extended break wasn't entirely wasted because in January I had something of a revelation, which I'm now going to tell you about with some words because it's highly relevant. My girlfriend also uh, suffers from depression and anxiety and things, and we were talking in the first week of January, and we've been together for about four years, but we've been friends for about 25 years, so I know her better than I know anyone else, and she knows me better than anyone else knows me, so we talk about a lot of deep stuff, and she's always found January to be the most difficult month of the year which I find odd because, for me, January the 1st is my favourite day of the year. Nothing to do with New Year's resolutions and all that crap. It's just that I, as a creative person, I always feel massively inspired the first day and the first week of the year. And five years, four or five years ago, I wrote 30,000 words of a novel in the first week of January, which is the most productive week of my life, and that's about a third of a novel, and that's ridiculous ridiculously prolific so i love january despite the cold and damp but then it's cold and damp in wales for 11 and a half months of the year so um but my girlfriend always struggles in january and we were talking about uh she was talking to me about when she first had some sort of stress and anxiety which is when she was 17 and it was over an exam that she was taking and she realized she didn't she hadn't done enough work to pass the exams that she needed to go to university. And she sort of had a bit of a breakdown after that. And she, ha- she mentioned in passing that it was in January that she was studying for this exam. And that was, when she, that was when things started to fall apart. And then she just carried on. And I said, hang on a minute, January? And she said, what? Because on some level, her subconscious had thrown up this connection, but she hadn't consciously noticed it. And I said, January? She said, what? I said, every January, you've been saying to me for the last few years we've been together, oh, January is so hard. And I've always wondered why, because nothing happens in January to stress you out. It's just you seem to be highly anxious and depressed for no reason. I said, you realize what you're doing, don't you? She said, no. I said, you're reliving your exam stress from January 30 years ago. That's what you're doing. And as soon as I said that to her, a light went on in her eyes and I I saw that she got it. And subconsciously she knew it, but often it takes someone else to point out something to you. And a week later I said to her, are you still finding January difficult? She said, no, it's just another month. So that's a problem she's had all her adult life. And I just, Solved it like that, not saying I'm great or anything I'm just saying that these this is how the human brain works and it it takes a certain amount of training and I did a lot of meditation in my twenties, so I'm perhaps more in touch with my subconscious than, than than other people but this is this is what you need to do is identify these patterns and if you're if you're anxious and depressed, you need to something's bother you need to think, is this actually about now, or is this something from the past? And you often find it's something from the past, not that I buy into for a second, the whole Freudian myth about, you know, we're ruled by our childhoods. I mean, not in the way that he meant in terms of, you know, being fascinated with shit and everyone wanting to shag their opposing gender parent. I mean, that's just nonsense. But um, I think I've said before, Freud was just putting his own perversions onto everyone else to make himself feel better. And his grandson turned out to be a paedophile, so there you go. Anyway, um, not to bring the podcast down. This is positive thinking, not talking about nasty people. So anyway, um, the point is that all you need to do is identify the pattern, and if a particular time of year or day of the week or a certain set of circumstances are triggering something in you, it's probably something from the past that you hadn't processed. And for my girlfriend, all it took was for me to point this out to her, and. Then the rest of the months, she was fine. And and I'm confident that next year, January's not going to be a problem for her. And if it is, I'll point out, do you remember last year? You're just reliving your exams again, and it'll maybe one other prompt, and then she won't have a problem in the future because it'll have been programmed into her subconscious that there's nothing wrong with January. It's just a hangover from the past. So we had this conversation, and then she said to me, because it never occurred to me, of course, that, you know, the physician physician heal thyself problem, which I think was episode two or three of this podcast. Anyway, Uh the problem is you often can't see things in yourself. And while I've identified a lot of negative patterns, it never occurred to me that I had a similar thing about a time of the year. But she said to me after we'd unraveled her January um conundrum, She said to me, if that's the case, why do you always go weird just before your birthday? And I thought about it and I said, do I? She said, yes. And she pointed out that I think the last few years that we've been together, every time we've tried to do something, the couple of weeks before my birthday, gone for a day out or whatever, I've had massive terrible mood swings and 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 got depressed or or just gone it's gone weird and a bit mental and it sort of ruined the day and I thought oh yeah she said why is that why just before your birthday and I thought about it and I thought I don't believe it it's so obvious and again another thing from well in this case 40 years ago and all I had to say to her was oh, I don't believe this is so obvious but a week before my seventh birthday my mother married my stepfather and she just grinned and said, well, there you are. That explains it all then. <laughs> and she obviously knows my history and you don't. and Not to bang on, on about myself, but basically uh, I grew up without a father, which is mostly fine. And then, well, not really, but anyway. And then a week before my seventh birthday, my mother remarried and my stepfather turned out to be a total piece of shit who ruined both our lives for 20 years. And I processed a lot of stuff before that. And I processed everything that happened afterwards. But the actual wedding itself, the day of the wedding, I realized I'd hardly ever thought about that. And it was one of the most confusing, bewildering, alienating, discombobulating, parallelogram, stop saying words. It was one of the most confusing days of my life. And in fact... (laughs) I remember sitting in the church and when it got to the bit where the vicar said, does anyone know any just cause why these people should not be married? I had to actually bite my lip because I almost shouted out, yes, I've already got one, father. I don't need another one. I often wonder what would have happened if I'd have done that. It probably just would have made him hate me even more for the next 20 years. Anyway, he's dead now, so sorry. Um, so, <laughs> but the point is that uh, you know we're now three months away from my birthday, and uh, once again my girlfriend and I are planning a day out to London for uh, just a couple of days before my birthday. And I'm confident now that I'm aware of this, that in the run-up to my birthday and our day out, that I'm not going to spoil it. By going mental because I'm aware of the connection and I will have eschewed such nonsense from my mind. So, uh, there we go. I hope that is um, helpful. And um, so, uh, before we get into negative thinking, uh, firstly, let's take a look at thinking itself. <laughs> So what actually is thinking? Most like a strange question, but there is no universally agreed definition of thought. It could be taken as being synonymous with consciousness. It could be restricted to higher level cognition only, analysing and assessing ideas and making decisions. Or alternatively one could take a reductionist approach and define thinking as the movement of neurotransmitters between synapses between synapses of the brain, i.e. the electrochemical flow of information, but none of these definitions are especially useful for any practical purposes. One factor needs to be made clear at the outset, however. The overwhelming majority of our thinking takes place in the subconscious brain, and we are not even aware of it until after the fact, and sometimes not even then. How often do you have a visceral reaction to something and form an opinion or course of action without conscious thought? The answer is all the time, for all of us, and that's just how the human brain happens to work. And this is especially common in our emotional reactions. When you become angry or upset, or even happy, do you really know exactly what has led to this emotional state? Most of the time you do not, because the root causes of the emotion are in a subconscious trigger that would take backtracking and a high degree of self-awareness to unravel, and time as well. Sometimes I am able to instantly discern these triggers, and thus dismiss them if they are negative, but it it has taken me 25 years of study and self-analysis to get to this point. Even now, I still often find my emotions spiraling out of control for reasons I cannot understand. Total mastery of your emotions is impossible, but progress can be made with practice and patience. And I feel the need at this juncture, despite the title of this podcast, to point out the dangers of positive thinking gurus who tell you that you can be whatever you want to be. That's my impression of an annoying sort of um, American you know californian hippie type no you emphatically cannot be or have or achieve whatever you desire you can't just decide to be an astronaut and do it tomorrow And many people live lives where even simple ambitions are financially socially logistically impossible you cannot control the world and bend it to your will even if you become the American president, there are huge practical limitations on what you are able to do, thankfully in current conditions not to get political. But you can, with practice, gain a higher level of control over your thoughts, emotions, and thus your life, though this will almost certainly not lead to the instant wealth and power promised by the shiny-suited, gleaming-toothed con-men of the self-help industry. Okay. So before we look at aspects of negative thinking and how to tackle them, let us further examine thinking itself in a practical manner. Rather than philosophizing about thinking in an abstract metaphysical manner, let's take a purely practical and experiential approach. How does thinking work on a day-to-day basis? What does it actually do for us? A thought can lead to an emotion a physical interaction with the material world, a physiological sensation, or another thought. And in turn, this leads to social interactions with other people. Experiments have shown that we react to a stimuli a fraction of a second before we become consciously aware of them. By the time I've realised that I want a cup of tea, I am already activating my muscles and preparing to move my body off the sofa and into the kitchen. That probably says more about me and how much bloody tea I drink than anything else. If someone throws a punch at your face, you will instinctively react before any conscious thought has taken place. I had an experience while learning to drive. I still don't drive. I took my test once and failed it and couldn't afford to do it again. But that's by the by. The point is, I was driving happily along a dual carriageway about 50 miles an hour and I'd had a few lessons by this point and I was pretty comfortable with driving and my instructor was really nice and relaxed and we used to just chat about music and comedy and stuff. And uh, you probably know that um, when you're driving, you're only actually paying conscious attention to your surroundings 25% of the time, which seems dangerous. But once you've learned to drive, then the point is you do it subconsciously. Um, see the previous episodes on Gurjev and Ospensky but we're driving along and I suddenly I was in the state of subconscious control and I suddenly became aware that I'd slammed the brakes on and I thought "Uh oh I would better pay attention and a car zoomed past us overtaking and narrowly missed hitting the oncoming traffic and my instructor turned to me and said I assume you meant to do that and I paused for a second and backtracked, and I I try and I tried to work out what had happened, and I realised that I had seen this guy, and if I hadn't slammed the brakes on, he wouldn't have been able to overtake and get back into the lane in front of us, and would have hit the oncoming traffic. So I said to my instructor, "Yes," and he said, "Well done, good reactions." And he tutted and said, "Look at that guy. He's got three kids sitting in the back of his car without seatbelts," and he he. And he's driving so recklessly, he nearly plowed into the oncoming traffic. Anyway, the point is that even though I'd only had a few lessons, my subconscious was paying so much attention that I, you know, potentially saved a few people's lives. I certainly saved a serious accident. The point is that by the time I was conscious of what I was doing, I'd already done it. I'd already taken the evasive action necessary. And that's just how the human brain works. So not only does a thought instantly lead to something else, often before we are even fully aware of the initial thought, but this is a constantly occurring cycle. We have a thought, we have an emotional reaction to the thought, we think about the emotional reaction, then we perform a physical action which changes the situation, leading to more thought and more emotional reactions. Then someone else will react to your reactions and the cycle becomes increasingly complex and intractable. This may sound counterintuitive, but you don't have to agree with your own thoughts. If you think about it for a moment, you will see the self-evident truth of this statement. How many times have you suddenly thought of doing something, but then not done it? Countless millions of times. I mentioned the incident at my mother's second wedding. And also, I often used to sit in, in assembly in school and think, why don't I just stand up and shout? bollocks and see what happens. But I never went through with it. Sometimes, though, I did give in to similar impulses in school and got in trouble for it, just shouting something out at random in the classroom. So this proves that we have at least some degree of free will. We are not automatons who automatically reject inappropriate or unwise ideas. And if you look at your own life, you If you're listening to this podcast, the chances that you often do unwise things, which you know are unwise, but you do them anyway, I think is fairly high or you wouldn't need to listen to this. We usually make a conscious decision rather than just go along with our base instincts, especially if experience tells us that there will be negative consequences, but, you know, not always. Unless, of course, we either don't care about the negative consequences or are deliberately inviting them because we're depressed, we hate ourselves, and we think that we deserve negative consequences. I lived like that for many years, and it's it's horrible. When I would say or do things in school that got me into trouble, it was because I was depressed and nihilistic, and I didn't consider being told off by a teacher anything to worry about. In fact, when I was 16 and beginning my A-levels, a teacher made the mistake of telling me something that gave me license to indulge my childish anarchic streak. And for American listeners and those outside the UK, i better just explain A-levels. In Britain, you stay in school legally until you're 16, and then you can leave, or you can stay on for another two years and you do A-levels, which are the exams you need to get into university. And... I didn't particularly want to go to university, or in fact, I thought I wasn't allowed. That's a long story for another podcast. Um, But uh, I was a few months into my A-levels, and I was basically just there because I I couldn't find a job, and they were all rubbish and low-paid. And so I was being told off for something minor. Mr. Park, who was the deputy head of year, he let slip something. He told me and but this was in 1988, he explained to me that because I, I was in school voluntarily, they couldn't actually legally force me to do anything or punish me. They weren't allowed to give detentions anymore because you were there voluntarily and you were considered an adult at 16. And he also said that the local education authority gave them £60 a week for every A level student, and this was 1988. That was a lot, that was more money than all the that, that was more money than a lot of people were earning for a full time job back then. All the jobs that I looked at in the job centre, uh, before I went back to do A levels, they were 40 pounds a week for a 40 hour week, and the school was getting 60 pounds a week just for having me there. So I realized they were only going to expel me or severely punish me if I did something extreme like, you know, beat up a teacher or set fire to a classroom or something. I realized that I had impunity for the next two years to basically just doss around and do whatever I felt like, as long as I didn't push it too far. So I knew how far I could push things in an effort to entertain my bored and nihilistic self. So in many instances, I was behaving in what appeared to be a reckless manner. But I had, in fact, made a well-calculated risk assessment and knew what I could and couldn't get away with without suffering any consequences that would inconvenience to me. Anyway, to turn to negative thinking, just because a negative thought pops into your head, A, doesn't mean you have to agree with it, and B, it certainly doesn't mean that you have to act on it and engage in negative behavior. This is a technique from cognitive behavioral therapy that I have adopted and trained myself to use on my own. When my brain presents me with a negative or troubling thought, I try to see it as nothing more than a cognitive event, something random that is happening in my head at that particular moment. I try to not identify with the thought, to not become entangled with or engage with it. I merely observe it and let it pass me by. This is difficult to start with, especially if you've never done any form of meditation or worked on your subconscious, but with practice it rapidly becomes easier until you do it automatically much of the time. I find that being aware of what a thought is, the electrochemical processes and the axons and dendrites in the brain, is very useful to me in viewing these thoughts as merely mental events, not something over which I have no control and with which I am forced to engage. Oh, I will say to myself sometimes, that's interesting that my brain is doing that to me, but it's not a useful idea to me at the moment, so I'll ignore it. A thought is just a thought, an intangible, ephemeral mental event. It is not your reality. There is often no connection between your thoughts and the current reality of your situation. If you can learn to think of your negative, self-critical thoughts as another dysfunctional part of you, not the real you, then they become much easier to ignore. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. Um, hope it's been useful and stay positive. And I will see you next week with part three of negative thinking. Uh, here is the closing music theme tune music closing. Oh, and, um, yeah, please like the Facebook and, uh, go to my website, marcusfreestone.com. And, uh, Blah, blah, blah. Baisy, bye.